You survived another week. Thank you for joining me again this week. This is the Urban Shooter Podcast, episode 225. News. A wooden bowl. Zombie strike. Interview with the editor of Soldier of Fortune magazine. Barbara's back, and she used an evil black rifle. All this and a whole lot more. Coming up next in your hour of power. Here at the Urban Shooter Podcast. CrossbreedHolsters.com presents the Urban Shooter Podcast. This is the program variety show that features inspiration, observations, and conversations about life, the shooting sports, and more. And here he is, now helping you survive another week, your friend and brother from a different mother, the black man with a gun, the pastor of patriots, paladins, and pistoleros, Ken Blanchard. Hey, happy freedom. Congratulations on finding me. Now, don't keep me a secret. Tell somebody listening to the Urban Shooter Podcast. It's the Pro-Gun Variety Show, and I'm your host, your friend and brother from a different mother, Ken Blanchard. I'm here to share a laugh with you, pass on some good information, help you save money, and provide positive information about guns, the industry, and just life in general. Thanks on taking a trip with me. You know... There is not enough time to do all the nothing that you want to do. My email address is blackmanwithagun at gmail.com. And on Facebook, you can find me under Ken N. Blanchard. You can leave a voicemail message toll-free in the U.S. at 888-675-0202. And you can find all these show notes at blackmanwithagun.com or kennblanchard.com. This week, our featured guest is Lieutenant Colonel Robert Brown. Yeah, that guy. Magazine editor of Soldier of Fortune magazine. In the news segment, I'm going to share the news about a new book out by Guy Smith and happily share the news that Paul Helmke's term is up with the anti-rights group that my friend Joseph P. Totoro wrote in the New Gun Week. FYI, there is a casting call for Top Shot Series 5 and a new series called Full Metal Jousting for all you knights in shining armor on the History Channel. There's a link to it on episode notes for 225. And for those in the mid-Atlantic region of the East Coast, I've been invited to speak in New Jersey this week uh, on Wednesday or this coming week. I'll try to tape it for you if you can't make it live and broadcast it somehow, but that's um, always been a work in progress. Money is tight right now, so this might be the last event you can see me at for a while. Going to share a story about the wooden bowl on this episode. And the story is as old as the Grimm's fairy tale itself, but uh, it's been around a while. But the moral is still a good one. Got a little frustrated and put up a little YouTube video. It's on uh, blackmailedagun.com now. You can check it out called uh, I Will Trust in the Lord or In God I Trust. I think that's what it is. Yeah, that's it. Made a little video use a new microphone, and use my iPhone, actually, to do it. Well, if you're ready, I'm ready. This is the Duke. Lead us in the Pledge of Allegiance. Welcome to the fun-filled, factual, and low-fed episode of the Urban Shooter Podcast. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. 
one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Let's start things off with uh, the news. This in from the new Gun Week, July 15, 2011 edition. Paul Hemke stepping down as Brady campaign chief by Joseph P. Tartaro, executive editor of the new Gun Week. Former three-term Fort Wayne, Indiana mayor Paul Hemke said on June 23rd that he'll step down July 10th as president of the Brady campaign and the Brady Center to Prevent Gun Violence, according to a report in the Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette. That date marks the end of the five-year commitment Hemke made when he hired as president by the Brady Boards in 2006. He plans to remain with the organization through the end of July, although not as president, to help with the transition to new leadership. Brady Vice President and General Counsel Dennis Hennigan will serve as acting president while the Brady Board search yet again for a new leader. Hemke, a Republican, was Fort Wayne mayor from 1988 to 2000. He was president of the U.S. Conference of Mayors in 1997 and 1998. According to the newspaper, Helmke said he's leaving the Brady campaign on good terms after what he considers five years of positive work to promote its platforms as, quote, moderate, reasonable approaches, end quote, to gun control. However, Helmke might phrase it, the organization he headed, which was more famously known as Handgun Control, Inc., before adopting the Brady name as part of its perpetual victim-centered imagery, never supported what anyone else considered reasonable. When the Student Committee for Carry On Campus was launched, Helmke was among those leaders who opposed Carry On Campus. By students or faculty portraying the academic atmosphere as something akin to the movie Animal House. Under his leadership or not, under all of its many names, the organization has never supported loosening any gun law as reasonable and found only complete prohibition of handguns as moderate. Helmke and company filed amicus briefs opposing most pro-gun litigation in the courts and have constantly supported and filed suits against gun owners and the gun industry. In fact, they not only supported suits against the entire gun industry, shopping for the most supportive judges they could find, they found the kind of outside legal help that traveled in lockstep with them. In supporting the victims' doctrine, the Brady campaign has always blamed the guns and never those who misuse guns to commit crimes. More than 30 years ago, Handgun Control Incorporated sought out and hired Nelson T. Pete Shields, a DuPont executive whose young son was a victim of the racist zebra killers in California, to head up the organization. Shields included, or Shields followed, the same script as successors, including, most recently, Helmke. After the 1981 assassination attempt on President Reagan and the wounding of his press secretary, James Brady, the organization hired Sarah Brady as a front person for the group, usually titled as chairman of the board, a title she still holds. As the strategists behind the anti-gun movement decided to moderate themselves in name only, they switched their official title to the Brady Campaign Against Gun Violence while Sarah and Jim Brady's names and faces became the signature public image for the anti-gunners. A string of others served as president or chief executive officers on a day-to-day basis. Helmke was just the latest in a long line of anti-gun stooges, fronting for organizations like the Joyce Foundation. He was a registered Republican 
with a proven anti-gun record in office. He was supposed to counter the image that anti-gunners supported only Democrats. However, during his time in office, the former Republican mayor endorsed the election of Barack Obama as president and promoted other Democrats for political office. When Obama didn't deliver immediately on the anti-gun, their anti-gun agenda, the Brady campaign and Honky gave him an F rating report card. Curiously, the National Rifle Association is usually labeled in much of the establishment media as being very pro-Republican, if not a GOP front. But the truth is, the NRA supports more Democrats for office and share more of its PAC funds with them than the moderate Brady campaign does with Republicans. The Journal Gazette story said Helmke hasn't figured out whether his next step will be in politics or the private sector, but he said he's weighing several offers. He also hasn't decided whether to stay in Washington, D.C. or return to Fort Wayne, where he has a home. In a memo to staff this week, Helmke called his five years busy, active, challenging, exciting, and fruitful. The recent trials of the national economy did not spare the Brady campaign, which Helmke said has undergone staff cuts in recent years and gotten used to doing more with less. However, the state of the economy is not the main reason for belt tightening at the Brady campaign. Their main source of income has come from nonprofit foundations, trust, and a handful of billionaires like George Soros. No matter what the organization is called, National Committee to Ban Handguns, Handgun Control Incorporated, or Brady Campaign, they have seldom had a large or wide grassroots footprint or related small donor base. Even their attempt to promote the Million Mom March was largely a failure. When launched, the Million Mom March was supported to force immediate congressional action by virtue of its overwhelming size, but it never gained the real public support it craved, as was thwarted in part by the simultaneous or the simultaneous emergence of the Second Amendment sisters. Shortly after its big show on the Capitol Mall in Washington, D.C., the Million Moms' name and organization was nursed in California. When that period could not produce the grassroots number or funding it needed, the Brady campaign rescued the name and combined it with the Brady name whenever necessary. But by whatever name it has been known, the anti-gun flagship has largely foundered everywhere except in the establishment media. According to the Journal-Gazette, the Brady campaign provided a lengthy list of what it considers Helmke's achievements for the organization. Among them, improving the Brady background check system, engaging a new generation of victim advocates such as Virginia Tech survivor Colin Goddard, and purposing or pursuing an aggressive media strategy. Helmke also worked to engage political allies in the more receptive Obama White House and non-political ones such as NFL player Plasco Burris, who had gone to jail for illegally possessing a handgun when he accidentally shot himself in the thigh. Burris then joined Helmke at the National Urban League to promote the anti-gun agenda. Helmke was an anti-gunner before he became the Brady campaign president. While mayor, he participated in events in Washington with Jim Brady, calling for gun locks. He was part of the group of 70 mayors and police chiefs who asked President Clinton for tougher restrictions on gun owners, including a national registry for the new gun purchases, higher taxes on ammunition and firearms, and more liability for so-called illegal sales by gun, set, by gun dealers. Helmke will soon be replaced by another prominent anti-gunner, 
and they will continue their campaign for civilian disarmament at the state and federal legislative levels, in the courts and especially in the media. Man, need some water. But one can only wonder at this point whether the anti-gun movement or is even relevant anymore. The public seems to have turned cool to the anti-gun agenda. Licensed concealed carry is about to begin in one of the last two holdout states, that's Wisconsin, with the vast majority being shall-issue states. Even the number of constitutional carry states has increased. Even the Congress has been cool to the anti-gunners' demands for action. And significantly, the Supreme Court has twice supported an individual right to keep and bear arms, a right Helmke and the anti-gunner claim never existed. And that was from Joseph P. Tartaro from the New Gun Week about Paul Hemke stepping down as the Brady campaign chief. Got a gun review from Joseph P. Tartaro, again from the New Gun Week. And it's about shooting the bull. It's a new book from the author of Gun Facts, Guy Smith. This book is subtitled A Field Guide to Identifying Political Lies in Real Time. And more specifically, it deals with and dissects the lies of what the author calls the anti-gun industry. An industry, it is, from those who engineer strategies for disarming the general population of the U.S. to the wordsmiths who manufacture all. The components of the anti-gun product top those who market it to the general public, teachers, politicians, the general media, the internet, social media, and even to billboards. The author, Guy Smith, is a native Southerner and Libertarian who currently resides in San Francisco, where he lobs his verbal Molotov cocktails regularly at the local anti-gun officialdom through the media, print, and electronic ways. He's a witty communication specialist, writer, and songwriter who has been featured speaker at several gun rights policy conferences. In his newest book, Smith dismembers most of the leading anti-gunners you have ever encountered in language that pulls no punches. After you have read this, Tome, you'll not only know how to fight back, but just where to apply the pressure. Whether in letters to the editors, speeches at local services clubs, or through the alternative media available through the internet, not one of the leading anti-gunners escapes Smith's careful examination as he refutes the lies and the methodology of propaganda employed by people like shockumentarian Michael Moore, media madwoman Rosie O'Donnell, New York City tyrant Michael Bloomberg, politicians like Barack Obama, Dianne Feinstein, Charles Schumer, Frank Laudenberg, and anti-gun professionals like Sarah Brady, Josh Sugarman, and Paul Hemke. He doesn't just give you the answers to their lies, but examines, as few have done before, the rationale behind the lies. In fact, as you read this book, you discover that Smith has broken down and examined the anti-gun lies into over 60 different types of lies, which he catalogs and details, from the lie of fear through its many variations to the lie of even better technology, to name a few. He explains how and why they use these different strategies of the professional propagandists to press their civilian disarmament agenda. Liars display a curiously common trait, Smith writes. When cornered, their recitations become more tangent, like a magician whose left hand distracts your attention away from what his right hand is doing. So did the gun control industry when the functional equivalency between assault weapons and hunting rifles was made. That passage is from Smith's 
lie of intimidation chapter on what I have always called the great assault weapons hoax. If you want to keep up with the lies of the anti-gunners and understand just what kind of skullduggery they're up to, you'll find this book valuable. And that's from Joseph P. Tartaro in the New Gun Week. And that was his review of the new book by Guy Smith, Shooting the Bull. Hi, I'm Mark Craighead, founder of Crossbreed Holsters. I designed our top-selling holster, the Super Tuck Deluxe, to solve the problems of being poked, pinched, and gouged while carrying concealed. The Super Tuck Deluxe is the most comfortable, most concealable holster on the market today. We offer a two-week free trial and a lifetime warranty. Visit us at crossbreedholsters.com. Don't forget crossbreedholsters.com. All right. Our featured presentation this week is an interview I had with Robert K. Brown, Lieutenant Colonel type, author, editor of Soldier Fortune magazine. Now, what's really cool is that I met this guy like eons ago when I first got into gun rights. And he remembered me and allowed me to give him a buzz. What was funny was that when I called him, um, he told me, he said, yo, Ken, I'm hard of hearing, so you got to speak up. And when I called him later to do the interview, I started yelling through the whole thing, and he heard me, but it came through like I was yelling. So, sorry about that. And now, our featured presentation. All right, this is episode 225 of the Urban Shooter Podcast, and my guest will be Lieutenant Colonel Robert K. Brown, combat correspondent, investigative journalist, founder, editor, and publisher of Soldier and Fortune Magazine. Lieutenant Colonel Brown, welcome to the Urban Shooter Podcast. Well, my pleasure is always. A, it's always a pleasure to be able to talk with like-minded souls. Editor of Soldier of Fortune magazine. Man, you've been doing that for a while. Well, we started the, the first issue uh, longer than I'd like to remember. Uh, goes back to uh, first issue came off the press way back in July of 1975. Nice, so man. We've, uh, we started out with just a bi-monthly, and then after a few months went to quarterly, then, pardon me, from uh, quarterly to bi-monthly to monthly, and I've uh, been in the business and on the newsstands ever since. That's an accomplishment, man. And you're also a board member of the National Rifle Association. Uh, yes, Ken, I've been on the NRA board for, uh, once again, longer than I like to think, 30 years. So, uh, uh, I think uh, we got another election coming up here that I'm running uh, for another term, which uh, will be next year. And I have every expectation of being fortunate enough to be being reelected because it's something I deeply believe in. And as I tell people, Ken, you know, the people come to me and, and I remember so complain about this and that and I said well that's, you know, the, the NRA has got warts it always has had any large organization always will have but it's the only thing that stands between uh, frankly between us and uh, the loss of our gun rights uh, is the NRA and uh, there's another, a number of other gun organizations out there that certainly do yeomanship work and are very valuable and sincere in their efforts but uh, when it comes down to the bottom line, 
the NRA is the only the only 800 pound gorilla in town that can protect us from uh, the slime like uh, Senator Schumer and, and uh, uh, Hillary and the rest of the bums. I heard you, man. I hear you. What's your background for, for our new listeners? Well, I uh, background briefly is that uh, I was in the army, uh, graduated from college, uh, enlisted in the army. Back when everybody either enlisted or was drafted, way really back in 1954, and I went to officers of candidate school, was commissioned, uh, served a tour uh, in the counterintelligence corps as a special agent, and then came back to grad school. Eventually got my uh, master's and uh, stayed in the reserve, and then uh, then uh, come to Vietnam, I volunteered to. Uh, to uh, go to Vietnam, and in the meantime, I had become airborne and special forces qualified, so I went over to Vietnam, and for six months, I was an intelligence officer with the 1st Division, and then the last six months, I was a, a special forces team leader, and then I come back, came back, and I got involved with uh, a friend of mine and putting together a publishing company, which you may have heard of, called Paladin Press. Mm-hmm. And uh, subsequently, after about four years, we decided to go our separate ways, and then I started uh, started uh, the Soldier Fortune magazine, as I said, in uh, July of 1975. That's pretty much of a broad brush treatment of uh, uh, my background. But in there, since then, I suppose I've been in two dozen wars and revolutions and coups and uh, traveling around the world uh, doing what uh, we thought was right and, and we uh, we were very active uh, much to the discontent of uh, the loony left the fact that we were out there supporting uh, uh, even everybody from the Christian militias in Lebanon to, uh, to uh, the ocean freedom fighters in Laos and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, it's been a very interesting uh, 35 years, to say the least, uh, Ken. Tell me about Soldier of Fortune magazine. I'm sorry? What, t- tell me about Soldier of Fortune magazine. Well, it, uh, we focus pretty much on, on uh, right now, we're focusing, obviously, on the war on terror. And uh, we cover a number of other areas, but uh, certainly our forte is publishing uh, uh, articles on the war on terror, including, of course, a heavy emphasis on where our, our troops are involved. And, and as we speak, that's uh, primarily Afghanistan, but also somewhat Iraq. And uh, that's something that we've been focusing on since the inception of the magazine, and that is the uh, uh, publicizing what our troops are doing certainly one of the major reasons to the uh, to Soldier Fortune's success in the very beginning is that we were the first publication that started to publish uh, to publish uh, articles on what I would call Vietnam hero stories keep in mind back in that uh, time frame uh, the large segment of the American public was adversely oriented toward uh, our vets coming back, uh, including the major media. They had no voice, so to speak, of. And we served as a 
uh, rally point, if you will, uh, for uh, Vietnam veterans. Working on the concept, and I still maintain this, you may agree or not agree about what we were doing in Vietnam, or if we were doing it right or wrong, but the bottom line is, old buddy, that our blood was reshed over there was just as red as anybody in World War II or World War One, etc. Uh, but uh, as contrasted to those wars, and, and even Korea, the Vietnam vet at that time uh, was not getting credit for his sacrifices, uh, both in treasure and blood. So we've just continued that tradition, and even now we continue to publish uh, stories on uh, the Vietnam War. You know what I like about your magazine that nobody else ever did? That was the sit rep part of it. Oh boy, well, that's, uh, that's become a very, very popular column. Uh, it it kind of condenses or puts together everything, it brings into focus, certainly not in great detail, but it gives you a broad brush treatment of all the stuff that's going on around the world that uh, even if you read both the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, you're not going to, you're not going to get that, that complete overview that you can get while looking at that. Yeah, uh, for 10 or 15 minutes. So I, I, I agree with you. I think it's a very valuable portion or part of the magazine. Yeah, it is. Where is Soldier Fortune going in the next couple of months, next couple of years? Well, you know, we never plan uh, because we've found in the past, over the past decades, we never can plan where we're going to go. One of, one, of the, one of the areas that we've been focusing on, of course, we've been doing this for off and on for several years, but really, once again, in some uh, degree of, uh, what shall I say, uh, well, I should say emphasis, we're putting on the, focusing on the little-known struggle that's going on over in eastern Burma, where the uh, ethnic tribes have been fighting the, the uh, thugs in Burma for, for Actually, they've been fighting them for 62 years. This is, I think, the longest insurgency, certainly in modern times. And, and these people are, uh, uh, the, the specific tribe we're working with has been, is the Koreans, uh, who uh, are very wonderful people. I've been inside Burma uh, illegally, of course, uh, twice with them. I had one of my reporters killed over there in 1987, was uh, serving as an advisor, as well as writing a story, and so we're, we're trying to uh, get them some attention. The difficulty this particular group has, as well as the other ethnic tribes in Burma, Burma is that they don't have any lobbying power here in the United States. You know, the, the Vietnamese do now because of numbers, even though the oceans. Uh, have considerable, uh, can get some attention, but these people, their conflict, which is just as, uh, real and just as tragic as, as what the, what the, uh, Vietnamese and, and, and Laotians went under, were subjected to, they just don't get the public exposure. So we are giving them uh, a lot of exposure. In fact, one thing we're very proud about, uh, Ken, a couple of years ago, we got a, a call from Sylvester Stallone's office, and they wanted to, they wanted what we would recommend to them as a conflict that uh, was justified, but had very little uh, exposure in the press. 
Of course, we came up with the crim, so uh, Stallone went ahead and made a movie, if you remember, his last movie, Rambo. Yeah. Not the last one. The one before his last one. Yeah. It was called Rambo, at what, number three, four, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was focusing on the situation in the uh, in Burma and, and the dreadful atrocities that these bums, uh, thugs, I shouldn't even give them the credit of being just a bum, they're thugs, butchers, in Burma have uh, been, been doing to these ethnic minorities. Uh, we didn't, the movie didn't, didn't resolve in the overthrow of the government, although we'd have hoped that to be the case. But right. At least it got the word out, if you follow me. Pardon? It, it worked for me. A, yeah. The, uh, digressing, if I may, uh, of course, the other thing we're focusing on in the magazine now, and, and that's that we have over the years, is uh, this a bunch of rogue, this rogue agency in the, in the U.S. government, and that's the ATF. And, of course, they're getting their just uh, desserts and being exposed for being the incompetent people. These people are just incompetent uh, on this, this gun runner or gun walker slash gun runner project. And uh, it's just amazing that these people could be so stupid. But, you know, that stupidity is costing us. We, we pay the, the cost of the budget of, of the ATF is a billion dollars a year. A billion dollars. And these bums come up with the most stupid... I mean, I, everybody I know in law, law enforcement, when we discuss this issue, just shakes their head and total amazement. Because the bottom line is this. So that, let's say they track the, the assault rifle from Joe's gun shop uh, down across the border. And let's say they've got a transponder in the stock, and let's say it ends up in the hands of the cartel. Well, what are they going to do then? I mean, cartels have guns. Cartels have lots of guns. So they got one more. Nobody has ever addressed the problem. What are they going to do? To, how is this going to bring down a cartel? Ridiculous, you know? Yeah. So these, these people are totally out of control. But, you know, they've got a history. Of, of stupidity. And no, no greater example, of course, is, is Waco, where uh, that whole thing was kicked off, even, even when, uh, even when they, they knew it was compromised, and it resulted in those, uh, I think it was, I don't know, four, five, six agents got killed. Poor guys, I feel nothing but sorry for them and their families. And then it turned into this horrible shootout, and of course you know the result. But because of the stupid, stupid, stupid. I mean, just my mind. But you know, the, the ATF has had a long history of trying to come up with some uh, great event. When? Right before appropriation time. I remember there was a case out a few years back as an example in Los Angeles where... Uh, where uh, uh, the ATF came in and to bust gangs. Mm-hmm. Well, they flew in with their own vehicles and, and um, did this big operation. A buddy of mine worked in the in the prison system. I said, I said, told me that the gangs knew a week ahead of time the ATF was coming. And what? After the operation is over, the only thing they could do, the guy head of the operation held up, they confiscated his shotgun. So these, these, 
these people are a bunch of bums, and, and they ought to, they ought to really. I hope they. I really hope they burn uh, the people responsible for this operation, Gunrunner. I heard that. What's new in the magazine? We're carrying monthly articles on on uh, on the ATF, and uh, we've got a an article coming up in the next issue uh, about a. Uh, uh, I think the guy, I don't know what his original, whether he's uh, Australian or American, but he was a sniper over in uh, in the Burma, uh, volunteering his time, no money paid. He was over there helping out uh, uh, the Koreans. And over the years, uh, there have been a lot of, a uh, fair number of Americans. We, in years past, have sent medical teams over to run, uh, work with the Koreans. So we've got that on an upcoming issue, and uh, which should be of interest. Uh, so uh, we we try and stay on top of the uh, the unknown and the little known uh, subjects, which will be of interest to our readers. All right, Second Amendment and gun rights activism. Tell me about that and Soldier Fortune magazine. Uh, we just uh, we focus on the a lot of our effort is focused on the Second Amendment. And uh, protecting the Second Amendment because I think it's uh, one of the thing, one of the factors that keeps our country free. Uh, really is uh, you know, disgusting to to uh, to uh, hear these people. Most of these people that are anti-gun, I found just though, you know, this is a tragedy. They're anti-gun because they don't know anything about guns. Now there are some that are anti-gun. For the simple reason they don't believe in people having the right to protect. They want the, the nanny state. And so uh, the nanny state is supposed to protect everybody from everything. And there's no room in the nanny state for an individual to provide for his own self-defense. Well, we know this is foolish. Uh, you know, no cop is going to tell you that he's going to come and save your, your butt. Uh, they, they do the investigation after the crime. And if you want to save your butt, you have to do it yourself in many cases. All right. But uh, this is one of the tragedies that we, we just can't get more people uh, exposed to guns. And the, the opposition is very, very as, as uh, evil as they are. They're very intelligent. They're very persistent. They're very clever. And they distort facts. There's no better example than that, Jan, of course, is this whole brouhaha over the years about assault rifles. Well, you and I know that uh, that's a lot of BS. Uh, there is, it's, it's a, they turned it into a cosmetic issue. And as I've said, whoever heard of somebody holding up a bank with a bayonet on a bayonet lock at the end of their gun? Well, nobody. But this is what the, uh, the opposition does and will continue to do. And I don't see that stopping. It's something we just have to be on our toes about and, and continue to work to explain to people that uh, the, uh, it's a cosmetic uh, function or aspect of, of a gun, and there's no way he has anything to do with a real assault rifle, which, as you know, is selective fire. But uh, people who are ignorant are easily bamboozled. That's, that's uh, I think, where we play a little bit of a part, not, not, nothing like the NRA or Second Amendment Foundation or some other guns, gun owners of America, all which are good organizations, uh, do. But uh, every little bit helps. That's true, man. All of us help. Thank you so much, bro. Okay, my friend. Anytime. And this has been Colonel Brown from Soldier Fortune Magazine.
HagerWatches.com. In the northwestern city of Maryland, known as Hagerstown, a new watch company begins. The watch is called Hogger. It is designed by a U.S. veteran, a watch aficionado, a patriot that wanted to leave his mark in history, offering a quality watch for the active person that didn't break the bank. Automatic movement, water resistant to three atmospheres. The Commando features a unique fighting knife logo on the back and the Urban Commando look. It's not too big and looks at home both in the office or in the field. Hoggerwatches.com. Get yours today. And now for something completely different. I was having lunch with a friend of mine and he was talking about a story that's as old as the Grimm's fairy tale itself. And this story has changed a few times in every culture, but it has a good moral. It's called a wooden bowl. And I want to share it with you this week. A frail old man went to live with his son, daughter-in-law, and a four-year-old grandson. Now the old man's hands trembled. His eyesight was blurred and his step faltered. The family ate together nightly at the dinner table. But the elderly grandfather's shaky hands and failing sight made eating rather difficult. His peas rolled off his spoon onto the floor. When he grasped the glass, often milk spilled on the tablecloth. The son and daughter-in-law became irritated with the whole mess. He said, we must do something about grandfather, said the son. I've had enough of his spilled milk, noisy eating, and food on the floor. So the husband and the wife set a small table in the corner. There, grandfather ate alone, while the rest of the family enjoyed dinner at the dinner table. Now, since grandfather had broken a dish or two, his food was served in a wooden bowl. Sometimes when the family glanced in grandfather's direction, he had a tear in his eye as he ate alone. Still, the only words the couple had for him were sharp admonitions when he dropped a fork or spilled food. The four-year-old watched all of it in silence. One evening before supper, the father noticed his son playing with wood scraps on the floor. He asked the child sweetly, What are you making? And just as sweetly, the boy responded, Oh, I'm making a little bowl for you and Mama to eat your food from when I grow up. The four-year-old smiled and went back to work. The word so struck the parents that they were speechless. Then tears started to stream down their cheeks. Though no word was spoken, both knew what must be done. That evening, the husband took grandfather's hand and gently led him back to the family table. For the remainder of his days, he ate every meal with the family. And for some reason, neither husband nor wife seemed to care any longer when a fork was dropped, milk was spilled, or the tablecloth was soiled. Children are remarkably perceptive. Their eyes are ever observed, their ears ever listen, and their minds ever process the messages they absorb. If they see us patiently provide a happy home atmosphere for family members, they will imitate that attitude for the rest of their lives. The wise parent realizes that every day that building blocks are being laid for the child's future. Let us all be wise builders and role models. Take care of yourself and those you love today and every day. Hey, Sister Barbara, where you at? 
Urban Shooter. This is Barbara Baird, Women's Outdoor News. Last week, we spent time on the prairie near Winter, South Dakota. Every year, our family gets together to help with prairie dog eradication efforts in this part of the country, known for wide-open spaces filled with cattle ranches, pheasants, antelope, mule deer, and people whose roots run deep, and people who don't think twice about leaving home with a firearm in the vehicle with them. We had a few days of shooting our ARs and a few days of working with high winds to flip a few dogs. Prairie dogs are considered varmints out here, and they are carriers of the bubonic plague. It doesn't take long to figure out why they're figured to be varmints after driving across a cow pasture filled with dog towns. Life underground must be a crazy thing in a dog town. Couple that with the rattlesnake attraction that these towns provide, and, well, it's not just a walk around the cow patties, if you know what I mean. I shoot various ARs, but my favorite is a Smith & Wesson Performance Center M&P, chambered with a 223 round, which my husband graciously reloads the ammo for, saving us somewhere in the vicinity of about 65 cents per round. The Smith & Wesson AR seems to handle military loads better than the other two, probably because the barrel comes with a keen rate of twist, allowing it to work with inferior types of ammo. The ammo that my husband loads is hot and right on point. No gun jams when using that. Then again, it is for a varmint load, whereas military ammo is not, but probably should be labeled as such. The other two ARs that I shoot are Bushmaster and Sig Sauer. I recommend varmint shooting with your rifle because often it provides real-world windage and other situational experience. It also puts a shooter under some pressure as opposed to just practicing at a standstill target on the range. So that's the tip of the week. Go varmint shooting if you can. For more news, reviews, and stories about women in the outdoors, check us out online, Women's Outdoor News, www.womensoutdoornews.can.com. I must have Ken Blanchard on the brain. Anyway, Ken, thanks, and we'll talk to you soon. Barbara Baird. No problem. Thanks, Barbara. Last week on Zombie Strike. Hey, last week we were at Chapter 87, Part 9, Skull Island, South Pacific, and Steve Mountain got woken by the alarm klaxon that blared on Zombie Strike's headquarters. He was just getting into bed and just getting a good old sleep, and now he had to get back up. He ran to the new command center. It was kind of like the old one, but this one had all the fancy new high-tech stuff in there. And when he got there, Ken Blanchard, Zombie Strike's commander, was already there. But he was there getting wrapped up by beautiful Dr. Jacobs. Chief Stahl jumped in the room a couple minutes later and everybody was coming together to see what Ken had up, you know, what was up with Big Ken. Well, the deal was, Giant had kidnapped Mateo. Say what? Yeah, that's the deal. Ken and Mateo were about to smoke a stogie on the dock when Giant appeared. Blam, 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 they exchanged some shots. Giant whipped out the whip and snatched Mateo into the water. Mateo wakes up in the bottom of a submarine as a prisoner. And to top it all off, Rachel's there, and they beat the snout out of her. So now Mateo is, in, is a captive, him and Rachel, in the bottom of a submarine somewhere, and Giant is all happy because he's got Mateo where he wants him. Wow. Where do we go from there? I'll tell you where. Episode 88, 
of Zombie Strike. This is Zombie Strike. Part 9, Chapter 88, Skull Island, South Pacific, 2 July 2011, 0800 hours local, countdown 5 months, 29 days. Steve Mountain couldn't muster his normal cheery smile as he walked into the command center. Steve could feel the tension as the intelligence techs poured over hundreds of field reports looking for the tiniest hint of where the truth had taken Mateo and Rachel. Everyone in Zombie Strike was on edge. It made sense. Zombie Strike's field commander and the MNW's liaison had been abducted 22 days ago from the very place the team thought they should have been secure. So now, the entire operation was running itself on the ragged edge to compensate for the collective guilt and fear. Steve kept his entrance quiet. A field team member was always on duty to assist the intelligence folks and to get the ball rolling if something developed. Inside the glass-walled conference at the heart of the command center, Chief Stahl paced. Stahl had a mug of coffee in one hand and was reading off the tablet in his other. Steve helped himself to a cup of coffee and walked in to join the chief. At least working for one of the largest and oldest global insurance firms had his perks. The coffee was much better than the paint-thinner substitute he'd endured in his days with the Army. I guess it's that time. Stahl rumbled as Steve entered the conference room. Take a seat, Mountain. What's up, Chief? Steve asked. Stahl's eyebrow arched up in surprise when Steve didn't correct the name. I think we're filling while Rome burns, Stahl said cryptically. You've been on this team the longest and you're a former soldier, so I want to run this by you first. I think we need to get back into the field. Tridegar sent us a report on a minion that Task Force 11 caught sneaking down from Canada. His little team backtracked the minion to Hong Kong. We have, another, we have other information that the truth has a major base in Hong Kong. So you're thinking we should be hitting Hong Kong and forget about searching for Matt? Steve asked. His tone was light, but his brown eyes were cold. I'm saying the field team needs to get back in the fight, Stahl said. We've already turned down two priority taskings from Task Force 11 and the Australians. The problem, dude, is this is not a military unit. If we were back in the teams or in the Rangers, then I'd be all over it, Steve said. This team just doesn't roll like that. General Allen knows it. That's why he didn't get really upset when Ken told him we, didn't, we couldn't deal with that mess in Santiago. Stahl started to say something but was cut off by one of the triplets banging on the conference room door. The two field team members shot up right as a diminutive Korean burst into the room. We may have found him, Park said, vibrating with excitement. The triplets were McKenzie and Winston's crack data intelligence team. Where? The two men chorused. Cape Town, Park answered. Maybe a week ago. One of the Toyota's car carriers reported seeing an unknown submarine rendezvous with a yacht. The beautiful truth, about 100 kilometers south of Cape Town. According to the Chinese, that yacht came back into Cape Town Harbor and very discreetly unloaded several individuals. I didn't know we were sharing information with the Chinese, Stahl said. Park quickly went still and proceeded to stare intently at the floor. We're not. 
We offered, but the Chinese want to do their own thing, Steve said. You hacked Chinese intelligence? Stahl asked incredulously. Park visibly gulped and continued to stare at the floor. Well, go clean up any footprints and tell your partners to pack up. Park looked confused. Stahl simply smiled as he pressed the recall button on his tablet. Looks like we're going to South Africa. Truth Compound, South Africa, 2 July 2011. 1000 hours local, countdown, 5 months, 29 days. Mateo Cortez watched Rachel Adams as she slept. It had been another bad night for Rachel. Between the pain from her injuries and the nightmares of the beatings that caused them, Rachel only slept in fits and starts. She'd finally relented and let Mateo give her some of the drugs that the truth doctors gave her. Mateo knew Rachel was ashamed that she was the anchor the truth was using to keep Mateo from trying to escape. She was trying as hard as she could to stop being a liability. It wasn't her fault. The truth was smart. They knew Mateo wouldn't leave her behind or do anything to endanger her. Mateo's head snapped up as Rachel let out a painful moan in her sleep. The truth hadn't just beaten her. They'd crippled her. Knees and ankles were destroyed and barely treated. Rachel could barely hobble around the small apartment on crutches. For someone who loved to run, it was beyond cruel. Frustrated at the thought, Mateo shot up from the chair and stormed over to the one of the large picture windows. He looked down on the truth soldiers training in the main courtyard and desperately wished he had his rifle. A knock came at the door. Mateo took a deep breath and forced the grimace from his face. He slowly walked over to the door of the apartment, using the brief time to contain his rage. A round, petite woman in a business suit walked in carrying a professional leather folder. Her gray-streaked brown hair was tied back in a professional bun. Her brown eyes sparkled behind thick glasses as she surveyed the apartment. Good morning, Mr. Cortez, Cassandra said, opening the folder. Is Miss Adams still in bed? You know she is, Mateo said, gritting out the words. The day after they'd arrived at this compound, Cassandra had shown up at their door. She introduced herself as their concierge with the duties of making their stay as enjoyable as possible under the circumstances. She said the last part so nonchalantly, Mateo nearly punched the tiny woman. Please, Mr. Cortez, I am only trying to be courteous. We have a very good orthopedic team being flown in to take care of Miss Adams's injuries. Cassandra paused to give Mateo a neutral look. Giant had been very clear on that point. Rachel would be taken care of as long as Mateo didn't attempt to escape. If anything, the truth seemed intent on keeping Mateo and Rachel in a gilded cage until it was time for him to fulfill his role in their prophecies. The apartment was more like a luxury suite in a five-star hotel. I have the lunch menu for today, Cassandra said, pulling out a folded paper and setting it on the writing desk. If you could please ring the kitchen within the hour with your selections, we would appreciate it. The maids will be here after lunch for cleaning and will do the security check at that time. Is there anything else you would require? No, thank you, Mateo said as politely as he could. Cassandra smiled pleasantly and bustled out of the room. 
when Tail resisted the urge to destroy something. He picked up the menu. As he scanned the choices, he noticed something odd. The number listed wasn't the phone for the kitchen. It was probably just a misprint, since it was only one number off. Just to be contrarian, he dialed the number on the menu. It rang twice before someone picked up. Don't say anything, Mateo. Just listen. A hushed voice said, I'm a friend. We both work for the same firm. Right now, just focus on getting Rachel healthy enough to move. I'm trying to get your team here. I'll keep contacting you this way, but it may be sparse for a bit. The man hung up. Mateo stared at the phone for a moment. In all likelihood, it could be just a plot to keep him in line. If they made him think rescue was coming, Mateo should be less like to try something for himself. It was possible, but something in the man's voice made Mateo think otherwise. For the first time in a long while, a real smile crept across Mateo's face. All right. Thanks for joining me this week. I want to give a shout out to my Facebook family, for my listeners of the In the Wilderness Ministries podcast. If you heard me on Stitcher.com, send me a note. That's to blackmanwithagun at gmail.com. Let me know you heard it there. Or Smash Talk Radio, either one of those two podcatchers. If you're on Facebook, look for the new Black Man with a Gun fan page. Going to do some cool stuff with that one. Special thanks to Soldier Fortune Magazine's Lieutenant Colonel Robert K. Brown. My friend and sister, women's outdoor news correspondent, Barbara Baird. The people of Crossbreed Holsters. My friends at Chris USA. And you. Franklin said, Consider how hard it is to change yourself and you'll understand what little chance you have in trying to change others. Hmm. That's some stuff. Me? I'm going to take it nice and easy. Try to get over myself. Hope you're having a good summer. Send me an email. Give me a call. Let me know what's going on in your world. Stay cool, play safely, and watch your back. Shalom, baby. This concludes another weekly edition of the Urban Shooter Podcast. Thanks for listening. Feel free to leave Ken a review on iTunes about the show. Join the forum on blackmanwithagun.info or comment on the show notes on kenblanchard.com. Let's take it nice and easy It's gonna be so easy For us to fall in love Hey baby, what's your hurry? Relax, don't you worry We're gonna fall in love safe to say, but let's make all the stops along the way. The problem 
Now, of course, it's to simply hold your horses. To rush would be a crime. Cause nice and easy does it every time. We on the road to romance. That's safe to say. But let's make all the stops along the way. The problem now, of course, is to simply hold your horses. To rush would be a crime. Cause nice and easy does it. Nice and easy does it. Nice and easy does it every time. And like the man said one more time, nice and easy does it. Nice and easy does it. Nice and easy does it every time. to swimming with bow-legged women.